Welcome to the Cherry Hills Podcast. Today we pick back up in our study through the Gospel of Mark called The Way of Jesus. We trust that you will receive just what you need from the Lord today. Thank you for joining us. Good morning, Cherry Hills. Hey, I'm Luke. It's great to be worshiping with you this morning. If you want to grab a Bible near you, we're going to be in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 38 this morning. And we'll get there in, uh, in just a minute. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, that's yours to keep. Take it. We want you to have it. Totally fine with us. It's, it's a gift. It's yours. So before we get into uh, to Mark 39, I just want to remind us, we've been walking through a series in the Gospel of Mark. Mark's testimony of the life, uh, death, ministry, resurrection, all the, of Jesus, right? And in, in Mark's Gospel, the reason that we're doing this, we've said this most weeks, we're following your notes, we're spending time with Jesus, learning to live the way of Jesus. Learning to live the way of Jesus. And in Mark 9, there's some heavy, serious stuff uh, that Jesus wants his disciples, wants us, his followers, to see and to notice. Now, back in summer 2021, there was a podcast that was released and made some waves, uh, got some people talking pretty immediately. I was having people reach out to me and text me. I had some meetings with folks uh, like, hey, have you heard this? What do you think? I was sharing it with some people. You got to listen to this. Give me some thoughts. Like, let's dialogue about this. And, and basically what it was, uh, the podcast was an autopsy of a church that had imploded through scandal and abuses of power. It's called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Some of you, I'm sure, know what I'm, I'm talking about. Others, if you don't, it's okay. I'd recommend listening to it. But the rise and fall of, of Mars Hill. And the podcast, although it focuses primarily on this one church and its pastor, the pattern, the stories that they describe in this are, of course, by no means isolated to that one church or their experience. The phenomenon of uh, failures of integrity and leadership missteps and uh, church dysfunction and unhealth, all of that is something you can see uh, in lots of different places in the history of the church and presently in the church. I could tell you about the pastor I knew in Orlando who had an affair and it wrecked their church and blew the whole thing up. I could tell you about the pastor at my uh, college town, the biggest church in our, my, my college town. Substance abuse issues came to light, wrecked their church, wrecked his ministry. And some of you have your own stories too, like that. Uh, some of you I know are, are not followers of Jesus here. You don't identify as a Christian. And by the way, glad you're here. Hope you feel welcome. Genuinely, I mean that. And some of, some of the reason maybe that you're not a follower of Jesus is because of stories like this. Because you're aware of the, the public personas and the people who have had the, the failings and that's really pushed you away, uh, made you disinterested or disillusioned with church and the gospel of Jesus. And maybe it's not even public stuff that, that's infamous stories. Maybe it's more personal, the things that you've experienced that others may not even know about. But regardless of whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, all of us come into this room today aware of the failures of integrity and uh, some of the, the things that serve to scandalize people away from the gospel. And Jesus has something to say about these types of things. He has some pretty strong language for it. 
And we're going to look at that in a second in, in Mark 9. But the reason that these stories are, are worth even acknowledging, by the way, is because, one, the church needs um, corporate confession of this stuff just as much as we need personal individual confession. But two, and this is the, the most important thing for us this morning, reflecting on the responsibility we all have as followers of Jesus to image and represent and, and bear witness to the reality of the gospel um, the responsibility of that, it, it falls upon all of us and these stories reflecting on them can cause us to self-examine and to consider and to reflect how well we are actually being stewards of the ministry that God has entrusted to us, right? First Corinthians ten twelve says, be careful if you think you stand lest you fall, right? And, and there is of course a particular weight of responsibility for people who are church leaders and people who are doing what I'm doing right now. James 3 says, not many of you should become teachers. You know, the way you teach will be judged more strictly. So there's that. But teacher or not, every one of us, every one of you has a field of impact on the people around you. Parents, you got a field of impact that's huge. Nobody's going to influence your kids more than you in the life of faith. Mentors, friends, coworkers, we all have a field of impact, a circle of influence And that means we all have a responsibility for the way that we steward the mission field in which God has placed us. You may have heard it said, you might be the only Bible someone ever reads. You might be the only sermon someone ever hears preached. That's true. People will read the gospel through you. They're gonna read the gospel through you. We're like magnets, right? We all have this innate power to repel people from Jesus or compel them toward Jesus. And Jesus wants us, he wants his disciples to be aware of this, to be aware of the way that they use their power and guard their integrity. And so we had some strong words for this. And in Mark chapter nine, I want us to approach the passage with this particular question in mind. If you're following in your notes, how does Jesus expect his followers to bear the responsibility as ministers of the gospel in light of the fact that the world is reading the gospel through us. If people are reading the gospel, if they're evaluating its credentials and its validity and its truth and its power through the way that we live our lives, how do we steward that responsibility? You you feel me on this question? So we're jumping into the middle of a scene today in the ministry of Jesus that picks up something Steve was talking about in the last week. So let me uh, set the stage for us, if you will, so we can jump into this, uh, aware of the context. So Jesus in Mark 9 is informing his disciples and preparing them for the end. Verse 30 and 31 says, Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he's teaching his disciples. So this isn't Jesus on a mountainside preaching the thousands. This is Jesus with his few, right? With his circle of guys uh, alone and he's doing personal private instruction and teaching and preparation for them. And what he tells them it, for a second time, by the way, is that some, some men are gonna, uh, deli- he's gonna be delivered into the hands of men who are going to kill him. But the disciples, they don't have a category for this. This is just too inconceivably world shattering to make sense of. So they don't really understand. They don't really get what Jesus is trying to communicate. And yet, we get a little bit of a hint that this created some sense of importance. You know what this is like, right? I mean, when you get some insider information, you got the inside scoop, you're in the inner circle, all of a sudden you're someone who's in the know. There's just a little bit of a, you know, a vision of grandeur that can come along with that. You got some, some clout, some notoriety. You're, you're in a place of importance. 
And we know that this is where the disciples' minds go because on the road from uh, 2K Pernium after Jesus has informed them of his death, right? And they're on the inside. They start talking about what? Power, uh, prestige, position, who's at the top of the pyramid. And so it's that conversation, they get to Capernaum, that's that conversation that Jesus views as a ministry crisis and it triggers this string of teaching on authority and power in the kingdom of God and what greatness is really all about. And he tells them things like, hey, the last have to be first, you're gonna be servant of all. And then he takes this, this kid, like he pulls a child and he picks him up, he embraces him in his arms and he puts him in the middle of this group of disciples. And he says something to the effect here of, um, if you welcome people like this into the middle and into the center, then I'm there too. And if you exclude the powerless, you exclude me. And this is what triggers John's response. This is where we'll pick up our text for this morning in Mark 9, verse 38. Teacher, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. Now is what John says here, is it a confession? Is, is he looking for praise? Like we did the right thing, Jesus. Or maybe he's, he's wanting some evaluation. He's not sure, like the disciples made the right call and he needs like some debrief from Jesus. What do you think, Jesus? I don't know, that was a 50-50 call we made. We don't know exactly, but I think there's some strong indicators that what motivated this intervention from the disciples was envy and pride and concern with power and control and nothing like the genuine way of Jesus. Notice, first of all, the guy who's casting out demons in the name of Jesus, he is doing this successfully, right? And you've gotta get this to make sense of the story. Uh, Jesus later on is gonna call this what this guy does miraculous, right? There's no denying that, that the man is actually accomplishing these, this, these feats, right? These, these miraculous signs of the kingdom of God. He's doing it. If you're following your notes, the disciples don't stop him because he's failing. They stop him because he's succeeding. That's the whole point. That's, that's the problem. He's doing this. Now, why is this an issue? Well, here, here's where the envy comes in. You may recall that earlier in Mark chapter nine, the, the most recent uh, episode in the public ministry of the disciples, there's a father who comes to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Jesus, my son, he is uh, oppressed by a demon. It's hurting him. And by the way, I went to your disciples and they couldn't help him. They couldn't cast it out. They failed, they flopped, they botched it, all right? And Jesus, he, he, later he talks to the disciples and he explains to them, they're curious, what was the issue? And he basically says to them, well, you're operating in your own power. See, if you were dependent on me through, you know, the, the demonstra demonstrated through prayer and fasting, this would have worked for you. But as such, you're operating in your own power. And so it didn't. So, so he, you see the, the hypocrisy and the envy and the pride starting to flow in, right? This now at play. Here they are, they're failed exorcists. And yet there's this like no-name guy who's not part of the inner circle of Jesus, who hasn't received any special commissioning to do this work that we know about. And he's crushing it. And so they wanna shut it down. They're like, uh-uh, you're not that guy. And so in the name of protecting 
the Messiah's ministry, as the leaders that he has selected, they stifle the spirit of God coming alive in somebody, working powerfully in them and through them for the glory of Jesus. And they wanna, they wanna get in the way of that. They wanna be a roadblock to that. But Jesus and God sees, knows, he celebrates, he empowers. Look, many of you here are unknown to me, right? Brian doesn't know your name. Steve doesn't know your name. You don't have any institutional power in this church. Uh, You don't possess any uh, unique established authority in the church, but God has empowered you. He's gifted you, he's called you, equipped you, he's sent you out, he's given you gifting and a mission field and a responsibility and a witness. And look, we need you and we need that. And God sees that and God blesses that. And we ought to celebrate that. God's not interested in just pulling together the elite few to gather the crowd and do their thing and put on the spectacle. What he wants is for even these no-name people to just, join what he's doing in the world, like go out and get after it in the name of Jesus, like be blessed, be sent, right? This is what Jesus is trying to do. And the disciples are missing it entirely. The anonymity of this guy, it's not his problem, it's his glory. God is working in his obscurity to do beautiful things for the kingdom. When we see other people doing that, are we gonna celebrate and get behind that? Or we will feel threatened by that. The disciples in this moment, at least they feel threatened by it. And look how Jesus responds in verse 39. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever's not against us is for us. Whoever's not against us is for us. Side note here, you know, Jesus didn't invent that that line. That's from uh, the Roman Cicero. He's Jesus paraphrasing a little bit, but that's what something Cicero had said. It's kind of an axiom in the first century. Whoever's not against us is for us. And, and I'll say this as, as by the way, right? Like Jesus is not um, beyond, he's not above, he's not opposed to seeing common wisdom from quote unquote secular sources and applying that to his disciples, his followers, his church, right? So if, and I just say this again, if you're somebody who's, suspicious, skeptical, antagonistic towards secular science, philosophy, psychology. Okay, let's be wise and be discerning, but let's also recognize all truth is God's truth. And Jesus sometimes takes some common wisdom and is like, don't you even know this? Everybody knows this. Cicero knew that we all know this. How come you guys don't get it? So maybe that's something worth just noting, paying attention to. Jesus surfaces common wisdom from the culture and applies it into the church. Whoever's not against us is for us. And he goes on to say, truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose their reward. If you're following your notes, the disciples are operating with a top-down control mentality toward ministry where whoever is not with us is against us. Whoever's not with us is against us. That's the mentality, right? They think that they're the professional Christians whom Jesus has hired to run the religious program that can then draw in the masses and do the real work of ministry. And everyone else is either a follower of them or they're in the way. They don't have a category for co-laborer, 
for anonymous partner in the gospel. And so potential friends and allies then become enemies and outsiders and threats and problems. But what Jesus actually wants for them, far from being the people who will just do all the work and draw on the masses and and create the following, what Jesus actually wants for them is to become a deeply formed people whose lives will authenticate the truth and the power of the gospel. Gerald McDermott says it this way. He says, Jesus spent the vast majority of his time with the remnant, the twelve. He went deep with them and trusted that their inner life, which he cultivated for three years, would radiate. Their lives would attract others. Their lives would attract others. Put simply, people will read the gospel through the disciples. And Jesus needs his disciples to grasp this fundamental insight and allow it to reshape their lives and the way that they steward the ministry which God has entrusted to them. Jesus is empowering, not disempowering. He's like Paul says, fan into the flame, the gift that God has given you, right? Jesus is like stoking the fires in people whose names we don't even know. And the disciples are trying to stamp out the flames. If you're following your notes, Jesus says every small thing done in the name of Jesus is an enduring work that God remembers in his kingdom. Hey, some of you, some of you made coffee and you serve coffee this morning. God sees that. He was with you in that. He knew about that. He remembers that. That's not overlooked and that's not forgotten. Nothing is wasted. It's not just the great acts that we think are great, right? That, that matter in the kingdom of God. Jesus says it's the small stuff, it's the ordinary things that echo into eternity. What if we could adopt the mentality of Jesus? How would we serve differently? How would we empower differently? How would we bless others differently? How would we view our own lives and our own gifting and our own sense of being called and sent into the world differently if we really believed what Jesus said was true? A cup of water, your reward is not lost. This is essential stuff for Jesus' disciples to get. It's the ordinary stuff that Jesus wants them to see that it matters, all of it matters. You know, I felt the Lord um, showing me this, telling me this recently, and this past is, is hitting it home for me. I think it's a sin. It's a sin for, for leaders in the church to use their platform to create spiritual insecurity for people. That's, that's devastating stuff for people in the spiritual life. Like, I can't hack it. I'm not worth it. God doesn't want to use me. It's a sin for leaders to create spiritual insecurity in the church. A leader's job is not to impress people into following Jesus. It's to cultivate an inner life that radiates. Yes? Jesus needs his disciples to get this, right? I need, I'm still learning this. When I was in college, I had a, I had a pastor in my church. And um, at the time, I was uh, 20 maybe. And I was, uh, I was leading the youth ministry there. I was speaking most weeks. I had a visible role in ministry at the church. And the pastor pulled me aside one time and uh, he told me I had, to, I had to sign up for the setup crew on Sunday morning. Now we were meeting in an elementary school. We didn't have our own building, our own space. So there's a group of guys who get there at 6 a.m. every day. It was just like an ungodly hour of the morning to me. And they, they set up chairs and pipe and drape and they plug in all the audio and they like 
They do everything, right? And that, like, that's how you do service. And then when it's all over, you, you, you tear it all down, you load it all up into the van and you, and you do it again next week. I was like, I don't, I don't wanna do that. But he's like, no, no, you, you need to do this. You need to do this. Nobody has the spiritual gift of stacking chairs, okay? <laughs> it's important to serve in your gifting. It's also just important to serve, right? To find ways to move into spaces of humility. That's what he wanted me to see. He was trying to guard my ego. Right? He, he's trying to say, it's, it's not good for you just to do things that will earn you acclaim. You need to do things that nobody will celebrate you for, thank you for, and praise you for. That's the real stuff of ministry that Jesus is after, right? Like Jesus doesn't want your platform, he wants your heart. I'm, I'm still trying to figure this out. It, it occurred to me recently, I have received far more encouragement in my life than I have given out to other people. And I think Jesus has been telling me lately, like, Pay attention to the deficit. There's an imbalance there. So I don't know, you know what it would be for you. We're all still trying to figure these things out. But what I, what I feel um, deeply true in my own life, and maybe this is true for you in a way, is we have to address uh, that deficit if you see that deficit so that we don't end up like the disciples where we're preventing people from coming alive to what God wants to do in their own life. We want everybody to, to wake up to the reality of the gospel and live a life that images who Jesus is so that when people read the gospel through them, they'll be like, oh, oh, that's who, that's who Jesus is like? Wow, I think I want some of that, right? And we'll compel rather than repel people from Jesus. And all this stuff is, is uh, deeply serious to Jesus. So he follows up this moment with the disciples with a passage that's really a collection of warnings on the seriousness, the severity, the stakes of following Jesus. Like if, if, if people know that you're a Christian, there's some weight to that, right? There's a field of impact. So let's take this very, very seriously. In Mark 9, verse 42, he goes on and he, he talks to them about being a stumbling block. He says, if anyone causes one of these little ones those who believe in me to stumble. It would be better for them if a large millstone were hung around their neck and they were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than uh, with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, you get where he's going with this. Pluck it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. That's heavy stuff, yeah? Um, you know, we have, a, we have a preaching calendar. It's a Google sheet and um, all the passages for the upcoming weeks are listed. And then to the right of those, there's like a, a title or a topic that's a suggested theme for that week. And so several weeks ago, I went to March 19. I was looking to see, okay, what passage was given to me by um, Steve and Brian to bless me on this week. And I saw this passage and next to it, it just said warnings. <laughs> and I was like, got it. Okay, good. And it is, right? It's warnings. It's warnings. So let's dive into this stuff, right? We got undying worms and severing body parts in hell. But if everything that I've read, if everything that I have read seems really severe and, and strange, let's just remember that if you've ever been angry and disillusioned and hurt by the church, Jesus is more mad about it than you are. 
right? And, and part of what a passage like this does for me, maybe it can do this for you too, is it can remind me that when I'm uh, wounded by the church, when I'm wounded by Christians, I can run to Jesus rather than running from Jesus because Jesus cares about it more than I do. And he did not play religious games. He did not tolerate destructive behavior that distorts people's experience of God in the community of faith. He understands that the world is reading the gospel through us. It's a big deal. And so he wants his disciples to take it deathly serious. And so he says, don't cause the little ones to stumble. Now remember that he's just grabbed a little one and and brought him into the midst. And now this kid is like, become a symbol of the whole church. And he's asking his disciples to think of the people in their life, in their circle of influence, uh, like their kids, like be spiritual parents to people in the the community of faith. Paul adopts this imagery a number of times. For example, in 1 Corinthians 4.15, you find Paul saying something like this. Even if you had 10,000 guardians, and we don't have a good English word for that. It's like a tutor or a hired help. Even if you had 10,000 guardians in Christ, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. You don't have to like call Brian, Father Brian, okay? That's not our, our theological tradition. But, but the image is there. And even if you're not a pastor, okay? Even if you're not a pastor, which I know most of you are not, right? We all have people in our lives where we have sacred responsibility. That's the main thing, sacred responsibility. To show them who Jesus is by the way that we live, to take them under our wing, right? To shepherd them, to disciple them, to care for them, to bring them along in the faith. Jesus says, consider that sacred responsibility. And his main concern is don't cause them to stumble. So what what does that mean? What does causing someone to stumble mean? The word there is scandalizo. And you can probably tell us where we get the English word scandalize or scandal, right? It doesn't just refer to any old sin. If you're following your notes, scandalizo means to put a stumbling block in someone's path. Put a stumbling block in someone's path. So you, you see somebody and they're like, pedaling, cruising their bike, and they're speeding down the hill, and you throw a broomstick in the spokes, scandalizo, okay? You ever seen a a police car chase, and they get the the officer out there, and he throws those spikes into the road, and the guy skids to a stop down the way, right? That's that's scandalizo. Uh, Metaphorically, the, the meaning of this word is to cause a fall, to cause a fall. So the point here is better for you to get chained to a giant rock and drown in the ocean than to be the cause of someone's departure from the faith. That's a big responsibility, isn't it? You know, many times I've had people tell me about their doubt, tell me about their faith struggle, faith crisis, their deconstruction, their whatever. And, um, just as, as a general rule, nine times out of 10, you know what they don't tell me? Man, it was the, it was the manuscript evidence of the New Testament that got me. It was the um, struggle to believe in the historicity of the resurrection and the person of Jesus that got me. You know what they say? They say it was the church. They say it was abuse, it was hypocrisy, it was scandal. It was they weren't really sincere. They didn't really care about me. They didn't really live this. Like nine times out of 10, The church is the the biggest obstacle to people belonging to the family of God. We gotta own that. Can we just be honest about it? 
Now, don't be too quick to, to say then, well, I'm not responsible for someone else's relationship with Jesus. Okay, okay, there's, there's a sense in which that's true. We're all individually accountable before God for our lives. I'll grant you that. But, but let's bear in mind how the opposite might also, in a sense, be very, very true and important for us to remember. Leslie Newbegin, who was a missionary, spent 40 years living in India, rides a bus all the way back to Europe, and then he encounters for the first time in a generation the secularization of the Western world, and it's just it blows his mind. He becomes one of the foremost uh, missiologists, like people who study uh, missionary activity, missionary movement, and write on theology of mission. Like he becomes a prolific author who helps us learn how to reach the Western world again. This is what he had to say. He said, the congregation is the central reality by which the gospel might become credible, might claim to be public truth. In the same book, The Gospel in a Pluralist Society, he says, the only hermeneutic of the gospel is the congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. Like we're a walking, talking, apologetic for the validity, the reality of Jesus. And church leaders, yeah, can play an outsized role in this, more visible the platform, uh, the more destructive the fall, but this principle is for all of us in the church. Even if you don't have positional authority and institutional power, you have a, a relational power, you have a circle of influence, a field of impact, a reach. Your life is in some sense public, lived in view of others who will look at your life and make determinations about whether or not Jesus is worth it, if he's real, if he can help, if he has something true to say about their experience in the world, they're gonna make those determinations about credibility based on observing you. That's what it means for the church to be a hermeneutic of the gospel. A hermeneutic is an interpretive grid, right? It's a framework, it's a lens. It's something you look through and interpret. And Jesus is like disciples. You, you, guys, are, you guys are that for other people. So, so don't cause others to stumble. This is why Jesus spends the last part of this section saying, guard your life, essentially, right? Feet, uh, hands, eyes, just guard your life. And the main point of, of all this, right, is Jesus saying it's better to sever a limb that's cancerous than to let it kill you, right? If something is bringing you away from Jesus and the, the end of that path is destruction, do whatever it takes to course correct, even if it's really severe and even if it's really, really painful. So if you're a, um, like a real literal person here this morning, I know that's some of you, you're just gonna have to like use your imagination a little bit. Jesus is a Hebrew prophet. He is swamped in Hebrew prophetic imagery and symbolism, right? So um, don't you know, actually like start taking the ax, okay? Um, some of this stuff here, he's, he's, he's being hyperbolic. And if some of that's hyperbolic, you should also understand that some of the imagery of hell is hyperbolic. I don't think Jesus is actually saying that, you know, there's a, a creature of an undying worm and they're like, let's just, okay, you with me, <laughs> right? Uh, the imagery of hell that Jesus is using here was common in the first century. There was a place called the Valley of Hinnom outside Jerusalem uh, or Gehenna. And centuries before Jesus, it had been used for human sacrifice. Now it was like a wasteland garbage dump. It's where people went to go and burn refuse and trash and stuff, right? And that had become in the first century, 
symbolic language to describe the ultimate destruction of the wicked at the final judgment. So Jesus is just taking up a lot of that imagery and those metaphors and employing it to say the judgment of God is real and it's serious. And if a little surgery can help you avoid the autopsy, do the surgery. Yes? But then he concludes all this, this portion of his teaching with um, some really enigmatic lines. And I don't know, I think I like the idea of Jesus being a little bit like hard to figure out. I don't, but in, in Mark 9, 49, right? He, he has this phrase, everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. So Jesus is uh, mixing up metaphors left and right here. And uh, it's kind of hard to keep up with him. So let me just point out a few things as we try to make sense of how Jesus is closing out this portion of his teaching for the disciples. Firstly, we need to know that salt was used regularly in the temple. It was in incense uh, that they would uh, offer to God. It was a part of the sacrificial rites. So um, there's a connection between salt and sacrifice and purification. So in one sense, right, have, um, or everyone be salted with fire. Part of what that could mean is like in the sense of Romans 12, uh, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, like live sacrificially. Another sense of what that could mean is everyone is going to be tested. Everyone must be refined. Uh, everyone is gonna have to go through a period of, of judgment. And why? Well, because we all need to be sifted and refined because people are gonna read the gospel through us and our inner life is, uh, is inextricably connected with our witness. So we all need, in order to live sacrificially, to be sifted and refined through fire, right? And then Jesus says that salt loses its saltiness and it can't be made salty again. Now, if you're in the first century, you probably had a firsthand experience of this. They they don't have, you know, modern machines and things to, um, you know, get pure sodium chloride like we have today, right? So their salt, mostly drawn from the Dead Sea, it's combined with other minerals. And they had the firsthand experience of seeing something that looks like salt, uh, but it's not fully pure salt. And it can diminish and lose its flavor and lose its potency and lose its functionality over time. And the implication here being, right, uh, people can get close to you and think, wow, you're a lot like Jesus Maybe the Christian faith, maybe the gospel thing like has some truth and some power to it, but then they're around you longer and longer and the more they get to know you and the more they see you, the more your presentation is unraveled, the salt loses its saltiness and they become disillusioned because the pure substance wasn't really there. So be the real thing because it's hard to reverse the damage once it's done. It's hard to get the saltiness back. What's that good for, right? Then he switches up the metaphor uh, one more time. Jesus was a really good teacher. Right? He can do a lot of mileage with just salt, okay? This is good stuff. He says, have salt among yourselves. Salt's also associated with meals, with table fellowship, with friendship gatherings. You don't go to a dinner party in the first century without salt on the table. I think this is kind of like Jesus saying, like, open a bottle of wine together, right? And he explains this, right? And be at peace Have peace with one another. That's what it means to have salt among yourself. Your inner life is gonna flow into your relational life. Let there be like some flavor here. 
Let there be some relationship that flows out of the wholeness and the goodness within you. So the disciples, they're concerned about power. They're concerned about position. They're concerned about the pyramid. But Jesus is putting kids in their midst and he's blessing anonymous kingdom workers and he's warning them to guard their own inner life and don't cause anybody else to stumble. And all that gets kind of beautifully churned together and summarized, have salt among yourselves and be at peace. Because salt flattens pyramids and salt topples ladders. When you get around a table with people who are doing ministry and sharing life together with you, something beautiful happens and we get to bear witness to who Jesus is in a new way. And the kingdom of God is advanced in the world. So it's not about you and what you can do. It's not about control. It's not about power. It's not about who's in charge. It's not about who's at the top, who's greatest, who's got the most authority. Be at peace, be purified, be the real thing. Watch your life, be a good steward of what God's entrusted to you. Have salt. That's what Jesus means. So he wants the disciples to see this. He wants us to see this as well. And so I want us to end with a question for reflection. As people read the gospel through me, will they be compelled toward Jesus or repelled from Jesus? I wanna give us a moment here. We're gonna receive communion in a minute, but I wanna give us a moment. The Bible says, examine yourselves before you step into communion, right? I wanna give us an opportunity for some self-reflection to just in the silence of your own mind to consider the salt of your life, to consider the way that you interact with people, the way that you manifest who Jesus is. When people read the gospel through you, what do they see? So just take 60 seconds here. You can pray, you can close, do whatever you need to do, but have an honest moment with the Lord. And if that flows from this moment into any conversation you need to have with your spouse, with a pastor, with a friend, let it be so. But just take a moment and consider when people read the gospel through you, what do they see? Thanks for joining us today. If you would like more information about our church, visit our website or find us on Facebook. Have a great day.